1: It just gets to me like I was 11 when it happened to me. And he was um, out on bail from another state and he was actually questioned in relation of a missing child. They let him out on bail. He skipped state, changed his name and, you know, then he perpetrated on me and my sister and there was a lot of other victims after me
0: as well. Welcome to The Deep. I'm Zoe Marshall. In my early 20s, a lot of traumatic things happened, and ever since then, I have had this fascination with people and their stories. This is The Deep. Kathy is the epitome of an Aussie butler. She's overcome very difficult odds. She's a true survivor. Kathy reached out to me to share her story and how it had been partially covered in a documentary called The Ghost Hunter. She said there was a lot more to her story and she wanted to share it with us. Kathy endured sexual trauma as a child. She suffered things no one should ever experience. This is a hard conversation. If you feel triggered, please head to the show notes for support contacts. Kathy, I was introduced to you via the documentary *The Ghost Hunter*. Brilliant, brilliant, um, Doco. Your life um, has many twists and turns, but I really <laughs> want to focus in on. Let's start at your childhood. Do you mind? No, that's okay. That's that's where it actually started, I guess. Can you tell me what home life was like for you around ten?
1: So pretty much my mum was with my stepfather and my two older sisters weren't living with us. I think we just moved from we were living at a House Commission home where it was just actually my sisters and myself and my stepsister and um, my mother and her boyfriend were living in his apartment around the corner. So it was like that for a few years. And then we moved into a place in Alexandria, mm-hmm. um, And it was kind of exciting, you know, we were out of house commission, it was a new house and um, the lounge room was really big and we had these shop front windows and I remember we used to, um, at Christmas time, put the tree up around, you know, and have it exposed in the window with all of its lights. So it was really exciting times. Mm. You know, my uh, mother was a heavy drinker and she spent a lot of time at work and then at the pub. I remember, like, you know, nine, ten years of age, you know, running up to the pub at nine o'clock at night at the door, mum, mum, when are you coming home? Or constantly on the phone to her, mum, when are you coming home? And mm. it it just seemed like, you know, it was pretty crazy, like, to look at how I am with my children now. There's no way in the world. I, I never leave. I'm pretty much helicopter mum. So, but yeah, back then, you know, we were running out and playing out in the streets and um, cooking spaghetti on toast for dinner and... There were some nights that meals were prepared for us, ready. Um, but I remember a lot of the time cooking fish fingers and things. I absolutely hate fish fingers now. I just I don't feed them to my children. <laughs> They're just one thing that yeah, it's a trigger food. Like, is, I, don't... I think it is. Yeah, I really think it is. Like, yeah, it's just not the food I want to give my kids. So, um, but yeah, just living like that, it was pretty full
0: on. It sounds like you were self-sufficient at nine.
1: Yeah, we were like um, washing. washing our own clothes, um, you know, like washing our own linen, wow. making our own beds. We were cleaning the house, vacuuming, dusting. Um, How old were the siblings, your sisters? Well, I was the youngest and, well, I am the youngest and um, I've got a sister seven years older than me and one 10 years older than me. Um, my stepsister is two years older than me, so... okay. We were all, I mean, my when we were all living in the flat alone, my sister was only 14 at the time and she was pretty much looking after all of us. I remember her doing the meals, you know. Um, she was playing the mother figure. She wasn't going to school. We had um, the truanting officers knocking on our door quite a lot. So that was the kind of life we had. I remember my mum having parties all the time and playing cards and, yeah, there was just always alcohol involved and... Um,
0: Yeah. So in that circumstance, did you feel quite unsafe or did that become quite normal quite quickly?
1: I think it felt almost normal to me because I didn't know anything else. So that was like, I didn't realise until I was an adult that how abnormal that was. Like that wasn't, I, I did look at some of my friends and think, you know, they've got a very different life and their parents are at home and, you know, they're, they were dressed differently, you know, we were quite poor and my hair was unmanaged quite a lot and I actually got bullied because my hair was unmanaged quite a lot. You know, I remember getting knits every now and then and my mum wasn't managing it properly and, mm. you know, kids are pretty cruel so I was getting called knithead and things like that and soap and, you know, because I was just running around, you know, and no shoes and unbrushed hair and, you know, just to me that was just... I did sort of notice a difference between other families, but that was all I knew, so it yeah. wasn't really... Yeah, I didn't realise until adulthood how full-on it was. So basically we moved to Alexandria and um, we were quite on a busy road, but just up the road from us there was a fish and chip shop. Mm. And, I mean, I think it was like every Friday night or sometimes on the weekend mum would say, go up and get some hot chips or something like that. And... um we noticed there was someone new who had taken over the shop and he seemed quite nice and I think he was there with his wife at the time and he just said look they've just moved into the area he has a daughter she's having a birthday party and you know she needs to make some friends and invited us along to her birthday party Mm. so it was just simple thing as that and I don't know with how everything was in those days I don't know if other parents like looked into things like that before they made a decision to let their children go but I think we went home and told mum and mum was like oh okay yeah all right and um so we went along and um it seemed pretty not it, it it actually wasn't like a normal birthday party I mean I hadn't been to a lot of birthday parties growing up but um There weren't many children there. Like, it was like, okay, this is supposed to be a birthday party, but I kind of felt like it wasn't right because where's all the kids sort of thing. I didn't really understand, but she got this pool for her birthday and um, obviously we couldn't just put the pool up. It was one of the ones that you had to dig a hole in the ground. The above ground one. Yeah, the above ground one and, you know, you had to dig the hole to put it in and all that sort of stuff, so... To make it fun for us, you know, we were asked to help dig a hole and we were like, yeah, you know, the motivation was to, we get to swim, you know, and who's um, got a pool in their backyard? And it was really exciting. So it seemed kind of normal. Um, I think that might have even happened over a couple of weekends and it got to the point where the pool was finally up and um, we were allowed to swim in it. But then he asked us to swim without our swimming tops and... Um, I I knew that, that, that there was something not right about that. Mm. Um, but it was fun, you know. We were allowed to swim in a pool, you know. We didn't have to be taken to the pools and wait for our parents. We had a friend with a pool. So sort of nothing really happened at the pool, but I think it was the whole grooming, the starting to groom. And um, then all of a sudden... Um, his wife and his stepson were gone and he oh. was living upstairs at the fish and chip shop. So they just sort of disappeared and we didn't really know anything of it. And so we never really went back to the house or anything after that. It was just everything was at the fish and chip shop. So, yeah, I mean, I guess that's how it was initiated. I think he was pretty in tune with what he wanted to do. He had plans, which is why, obviously, um, you know, his wife and son had left and... Um, He had ulterior motives with what he had wanted to do with the girls.
0: So can you tell me what he wanted to do with the girls?
1: Well, I think the first initial thing I remember is at the fish and chip shop, one of the things I remember is he said, "Um, I've got some things upstairs behind the fireplace. He goes, I want you to go upstairs and check them out and, you know, play around with them or whatever. And... I remember going upstairs and we pulled all these vibrators and, like, dildos oh. and stuff out of the fireplace. And, you know, we're pressing the buttons. And we didn't really know what they were for. I mean, I was, what, 11 years old, so I was like, i never seen anything like that. And um, so I think my, my stepsister, she sort of knew a little bit more about it than what I did and, you know, but I don't know, like to this day i feel that i don't know as an adult i look back on that time and i feel that he had cameras set up around um and and you know he that was part of the grooming but um from what i heard about who he is and who he was and where he'd come from i dare say that um yeah that would have been the case i mean you know, we've, the police, they now have actually looked for any footage or photographs or anything like that to try and find it. They didn't find anything but, yeah, it's like even just to have the police do that sort of thing is like, wow, so the police are going to look through all this pornographic child porn stuff and see if they can find match my childhood photo up with that. And it's like, wow, you don't realise how big it is until you sort of grow up and learn how fucked up it is, you mm. know pretty full on so that's what I remember there but then he didn't have that shop for very long and and
0: moved to a a flat at Stanmore. And was he using his child as the bait all the time or did he get comfortable enough with you guys that he was like could just come on over? No well after that like I don't really
1: remember much apart from the dildos and stuff at the fish and chip shop but Um, When he actually moved to Stanmore, and I remember the first time we stayed there, um, he was in the shower and um, actually come out and said, oh, I I can't remember whether she said come into the bathroom. And so we went into the bathroom. She goes, oh, my dad lets me wash him while he's in the shower. And um, yeah, it was just, I think that was like the initiation. And I do believe that he used her as a pawn. So... Did that continue, these
0: little I think snippets? so, yeah.
1: Yeah. It's, it's a little bit hard because I I guess with trauma, you know, you suppress your memory so much and you there's a lot that I I remember little snippets. Like at the flat at Stanmore, I don't even remember having her own bedroom. Mm. Like I only remember this one bedroom and, and part of the lounge room of the flat, like I, where the trauma took place. Yes. I don't remember her bedroom at all. Like it was just
0: yeah how old was she?
1: Um I think she was
0: about maybe seven. Oh seven she was right younger. Maybe. So what was the turning point for this perpetrator? What was the moment in time that he was like, We're ramping this up? I can't even really remember all I
1: remember is it went from... Like I remember scenes of him sitting on a chair with his pants down and hard on and we were giving him oral pleasure and and different things like that. And then, you know, I have like little flash memories of the trauma, which is really hard because I guess for any child that goes through it, to, to come to their 30s and then to be trying to um, do like a historical case with yeah. the police... Um, you know, you have very, sorry, fragmented memories. Do you know what I mean? And it's like it just gets to me. Like I was 11 when it happened to me and he was um, out on bail from another state and he was actually questioned in relation of a missing child. They let him out on bail. He skipped state, changed his name and, you know, then he perpetrated on me and my sister and, and and there was a lot of other
0: victims after me as well. Do you know if ever went further with his victims? Did he or his child? or I know
1: what I went through with him. I mean, he offered me $50 to break my virginity once. I refused and I don't... And he didn't do it. Um, but then, going through the court process a few years ago, there was nine of us victims, and I heard what he did to all of us victims through in court. They they literally the judge explains it word for word, pretty much. So to sit in that courtroom, it, it fucked me up. Um, I actually felt spared, you know. I some of the victims were like six and seven years old and what he was doing to them, grown men wouldn't even do to a woman, you know. A decent man wouldn't do to a woman. And um, I couldn't unhear it for so long and like even my own relationship with my partner, like there were certain things I'm like, oh, I hope he doesn't try and do anything like because I was scared of being triggered. Um, not that he does anything vile to me mm-hmm. but in a normal bedroom setting with your partner, like, those things are okay. But um, when you hear about, and and he was doing even worse things, you know, like anal sex with six- and seven-year-old girls, like, just really full-on. So I always question to this day, why the hell did he offer me $50 for my virginity? These other little girls, he didn't give them an opportunity. He just took it. Why did he offer that to me, like... I just – I can't – whether that was at a different stage of him mm. his, him being a perpetrator and doing those things, what did he feel guilty about doing that and then it was right for him to actually offer it to me. Mm. Like, that's just – yeah, I kind of struggle with that a little bit. Just um, – I feel guilty almost, you know what I mean? Like, I shouldn't feel guilty but, you know, I feel like I was a little bit more blessed than what they were, you know, and it's, yeah, it's pretty, none of us were blessed, but not when it comes to that, but, yeah, it's pretty hard. I mean, I remember some pretty vivid things, like, you know, I had no hair downstairs and my sister did, so he would do stuff to her while he would stand, like I would stand there naked and he would look at me. Like, and that's, it's pretty crazy, like, yeah, very, very sick. And it's just like you know, I I think you know if he was
0: never given bail, then so he went. He was on bail while he did these things to you. Yeah, he had been caught, and persecuted.
1: Well, no, he was on bail. No, not persecuted. So he was just caught and on bail. On bail, and he skipped state. I think it happened in Victoria for the first charge, and that was in the early seventies. So it was like 10 years later, he's in New South Wales. And I think the victim, I think because there were nine of us victims in court and I think five of those
0: victims happened before me. And I'm thinking about his child that is stuck and that is seven. Yeah. And it was not
1: even his child. Oh. It's... She was actually, her mother was a drug addict and um, I think was locked out of her flat one day and he took her and then he pretty much blackmailed um, his mother. So in the end, um, I think she tried to attack him once or something and then she he used that against her with the police saying, I'll just go to the police and blah, blah, blah. And so he ended up with but um, told me some pretty horrific stuff as well, like, you know, she remembers being left at different men's places and, you know, she's got, like me, lapsed memory about those kind of things because your body has a way of protecting itself from trauma. Mm. It's a trauma response. But, um, you know, like when we caught up as adults, we didn't really discuss it. We sort of said, you know, when I first caught up with shit, it was on Facebook and um, when I spoke to on the phone, she kept saying, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, like I'm so sorry that happened and I'm like, you were younger than me, like please don't say sorry. Like she was saying sorry because she couldn't protect me. <laughs> like what the hell? She was a little girl. I was a little girl, you know? And to hear her say that, she carried guilt because she was used as a pawn to bring us in. You know, and I understood why she felt like that, but I just kept telling her, please, it's not your fault. Like, you know, you can't you can't carry that with you. Like, but it wasn't until, th- like, we all went through court that we really understood each other's trauma and what we'd all been through. And, you know, it's funny doing our impact statements. We all got up and read them. Well, most of us got up and read them. I was like, you know, I'm going to get up and read it because I'm... I'm trying to reclaim my soul back, you know, and I just wanted to show him that he couldn't take any more from me and that I was stronger. I actually the day of sentencing, I dyed my hair bright red, <laughs> bright bloody red, and I'm and I hated it. But I realized that I did that because I didn't want him to know me as what I look like today. I didn't want him to have a vision of me to go back and have dirty thoughts about me and stuff. Mm. So I changed my whole look just to, so he wouldn't remember. I could then go back because for a long time, like, you know, I was an alcoholic at 14 and um, I used to go drinking bars and stuff like that, 14, 15, 16, and I remember I'd always see him, whether it was him or not. It was just... I Haunting. I felt, yeah, it was haunting. I felt like I was constantly running from him and... Um, you know, I saw a hearse driving down the road one day and the man driving it, I swear to God, looked like his, like him. And um, all I kept thinking was he's going to catch me and he's going to put me in a coffin. Like, you know, And it, I remember that day, like I was actually 17 at the time. No, 16. And I just got a traineeship at um, a travel agent. And I had to, at lunchtime, just after I had lunch, I had to go to the consulate and pick up people's um, tickets and things like that to travel. Um, They were going to be picking them up at six o'clock that night from the travel agency. Anyway, so at lunchtime, I went down to the 747 bar at Wynyard and I had a few friends down there and um, I was drinking bourbon and coke, bourbon and cokes, and I was pretty drunk. And then when I was leaving to go to the consulate, Is when I saw the hearse and um, thought he was driving, and I, I lost my shit, and I went back to the bar and continued to drink. And um, then I realized the time, and it was like five to six, and I'm like, "What the hell?" So I ended up going back to the travel agent, and I, I just broke down crying, and I think I actually gave them, like, I told them about what had happened to me, and I thought I saw him, and. Um, I think that was the first time I really ever told anybody. Wow. Um, And they felt really bad, you know. Even though I missed out on getting people's tickets and they were going to be travelling out and things like that, um, they actually offered to keep me on. Like, but I didn't. I left there and then I become an exotic dancer.
0: How old were you? Sixteen. When you you told the first person, which was that company, not a family friend not a family member.
1: Yeah, it was 16 years old. So, and then even I think they rang my mum and I my mum didn't really even get into it with me like I I'm not I don't really understand that like you know, I don't know whether she just thought it was a drunken episode or something like that.
0: But so you told her about the episode and you told her what happened to you within that episode. I don't know if I went into detail. Um,
1: but I remember giving them a a quick brief you know a man did something bad to me and yeah but it wasn't ever like gosh I know if my daughter come to me and, and said anything like that I would be almost delving getting her to you know I would be doing everything in my power to get her to feel comfortable to and you know to get justice and but, yeah, it was, wasn't like that. I don't know if it was just the times. I mean. Do you think
0: it was the her? Do you think it was her way of mothering? Maybe, yeah. Just um, I don't know. Did you ever tell her? Did she ever know? No.
1: And because she passed away 14 years ago, like she never
0: really had the chance to know about that. So who did you tell? who when was the point in which you were like this is eating at me and I need to tell somebody probably about seven years ago um I've always wondered
1: about (laughs) so um I was searching for her on Facebook and then we finally caught up with each other and um I don't know she said that she'd been talking to a counselor and you know we spoke, we we spoke in um indirectly about what had happened to us and cuz she was apologizing to me and stuff and um like I said it's not your fault blah, blah blah but she said she was seeing a counselor and the counselor was trying to encourage her to have him charged and maybe look for him but you know we didn't even know his full name like yeah you know we didn't really know who to look for um or where he was or anything like that. So it was like a little bit hard. But I hadn't spoken to her for a while after that. And um, I remember while I was talking to her, I said, oh, maybe we should try and find his son. Maybe if we can find his son, we might find him, like, you know. So we were looking for him and um, couldn't find him. And then one day I saw a picture of him on Facebook on a, a page that I was running. I'm like, oh, my God, that's him. Anyway, so we found him and through talking to him, um, I actually didn't disclose who I was. I just said, look, you know, I've got a half-sister. She's looking for a father. We think it might be the same father as you. Wow. I was trying to – I was doing my own detective work, so to speak. Um, I didn't want to tell him who I was. I wasn't sure who he was. You know, you have these questions. Is he like his father? Yes. Um, So I tried really carefully And then he said to me, oh, you know, I've been looking for my father too. Um, And then I think a few weeks later he told me, oh, the police rang me. They're looking for my father. And I said, oh, okay, what's that about? And then he said, oh, you know, apparently he's done some stuff to some little girls, like, in the past. And I went, okay, and I delved into, so, you know, how do you feel about that, like? Is he like his dad you wanted to suss him out? I guess about? so, yeah, I wanted wanted to suss him out before I disclosed who I was and, and he was just like, oh, it's putrid and, like, you know, I hate him and that's not the father I wanted to find. And so, yeah, I was just like, okay, well, I'm a victim. So from there I said, so what's this detective's name? And I didn't realise that the connection, I'm like, because she was from Marrickville Police. And I'm thinking, oh, okay, and lives in Queensland. So I'm thinking, oh, okay, there was no connection. Mm. Oh, there's obviously more victims was what I was thinking. And um, so I asked for the details and he gave me the details. And she already knew about me because of statement yes so she just hasn't hadn't contacted me yet and um so I sent her an email and I just said you know he did some really bad things to me as a kid and I gave him my number so that sort of opened up the opportunity for her to contact me and she rang me and we spoke a little bit on the phone and she said look um do you want to do a statement and I said yes and um, so I met up with Ellen, and um, she actually come to my local police station so I didn't have to travel. And I sat there for six hours giving her my statement. I think it was like 15 or 16 pages long. And it was the first time i ever spoken about it. And I had to sit there and talk about it in detail. Like I had to explain what his penis looked like, what if I could remember. Like it's pretty... When you give a statement like that, all the details it's matter. It's really graphic. Um, you know, I remember for my other statement even, you, you know, you have to draw pictures of the bedroom and where the beds were and where different things took place. And, so it is pretty full on. Um, it's not an easy process. But, yeah, I sat there for six hours and I was just talking like this. I didn't, like, I was preparing myself. I went and got hair extensions for the first time and everything. I'm just like, you know what, I'm going to make sure I feel good for this, you know, like, and um, so I got to the end of, like, six-hour statement and um, I was just talking normally like this. I'm like, oh, my God. I actually said to Ellen, look at me. Like, I can't believe, like, I haven't broken and um, I think maybe, you know, my voice cracked along the way and stuff like that. But I think it was just, I think I was just so grateful to finally let go of it and get it all out. And um, and she just kept reminding me all through it, like, you know what, it's not your fault. You were a child. Um, he shouldn't have done these things. And it was just the constant, she was just so amazing. Like, she just made me feel so because I carried it and I blame myself, you know. There's one thing about being a victim. I mean, we've all got um, spots, you know, when we touch them, they feel good. It doesn't matter what age you are. If someone touches it, it feels nice. So I think with um, child victims, they go away thinking, did I enjoy that? Was that nice? Like, is there something wrong with me? Mm-hmm. And so you go through all those and you start blaming and, it's so confusing for a child. It is. It's really confusing. Um, and she just took all that away from me, you know. Like, yeah, it was. It, she was so good. And then she goes, okay, she goes, this is the hard bit. I need you to read the statement back and make sure it's right. And I went, oh, okay, yep, this is going to be a hard one. I'm going to be fucked up after this one. And I read it and, and I'm like, oh, my God, I'm okay. Like, I don't think I was okay. I think... I had learnt for so long to be strong. Um, mentally, I was pretty fucked up for a long time after that, like going through the court process. And, um, yeah, I was quite mentally unwell. I wasn't eating. Um, you know, I was dropping weight. I wasn't sleeping. I was having night terrors, grinding my teeth. um you know poor Aiden he'd wake up and he'd be either have pinch marks in his arms because you know men is Aiden your partner Aiden's my partner so you know normally your partner will turn over and cuddle you during mm. the night he couldn't he's never been able to do that we've been together 12 years he's never been able to do that because he gets flogged yeah he will get punched he'll like he, wa- he was waking up with bleeding noses fat lips um wow. And then, you know, he started working nights, so he'd come home. There was, like, once he come home and it was, like, summer and, I like, I curled myself up in the blankets really tight and he, I, he said I was sweating quite badly and I, he, he said, you look really hot. And he pulled the blanket off at me and I screamed at him, what the fuck are you doing? And I grabbed the blanket and pulled myself and he's like, it's all right, it's just me, it's just me. So, you know, I've had a lot of moments like that with him and, um, it's still so deeply in the cells, yeah, I think now I'm not as not as bad, like I am healing more and more and more, but there's some triggers like you know he still can't touch me during the night, mm. I mean, if I could have anything in the world, it'd be just for him to come to bed and just cuddle into me, you know, and just something simple like that, you know it's I've never known that, do you know what I mean, and um. It'd be nice not to have, like, if I've even said to him, if I can go and get um, electric (laughs) shock therapy therapy, just so I can have a normal relationship, I would do that, Mm. you know. Um, Yeah. But the life it leads you into when you're um, abused, like my mother told me that my father actually raped her and that's how she fell pregnant with me. And then my sisters sort of have both told me different accounts of that. And My mum went through domestic violence stuff with my father. And um, so then, you know, I'm just thinking to myself as this young teenage girl, well, maybe I was just born to be raped. Maybe I was just born for men's pleasure. Like I literally had that, you know, um, I'd become a pin-up model. I was a stripper and I'm like, well, you know what, well, I may as-, may as well get paid for it, like. These men are just going to take what they want anyway and, you know, I may as well make a living from it. So, yeah, and it's like I remember I was a go-go dancer at a nightclub, I think 16 years old. Um, and this one I've never had um, justice for. Well, I kind of did in a, in a way, but um, I was, my drink was spiked and I end up going home with this guy, and I was actually gang raped um, oh by about God. five or six guys. Um, I remember being in the bed, and, and you know, my daughter's 16 now, you know, and she's, God love her, she's such a sweet girl, like, she's a good girl. Um, but I just remember laying in this bed and unable to move and unable to speak, and being half in and out of consciousness, like not really with it. And um, one after the other were coming in and out of the room and having their way with me. And then when I did sort of wake up to it and was able to wake up, they were long finished. Um, I woke up in this room and um, got up and I walked out to the lounge room and there were a few guys sitting there with some girls and I didn't know any of them. And I just asked him where the train station was, and then I remember going home. But um, about two weeks later, the guy who actually did—I didn't know his name or anything—he actually hung himself in the high school. So How do you know it was him? I remember, I I remember his name back then, yeah, but I don't know his name now but you um, knew that he i knew it was he him did it i knew he was the instigator i think i was he was almost getting on to me in the club and i thought you know i looked for love in all the wrong places unfortunately and that just led me to going home with him i thought i was going home with him you know i just wanted someone to love me and i guess i did it in all the wrong ways i looked for it in all the wrong ways and you know where i am now i mean i'm 47 years old And I've learned a lot about childhood trauma, like sexual abuse and stuff like that, and unfortunately it's quite common. Um, And in child neglect, you know, like my parents weren't really there 100% for me. Like I know of kids who had a lot worse than me, so I look at my life and I think, well, you know, I kind of had my parents there and, you know, it's not exactly how I wanted, but it was better than what they had it, you know. So I sort of look at it and think, well... You know, they did love me, but just I would have, yeah, I don't know. I guess it's a justification or something like that, but um, an acceptance almost.
0: You obviously, you tell this um, cop this statement, it turns into a court case. You get to stand up there, face your perpetrator, say your truth. But in what point do you go, oof, there's a lot of trauma in my body.
1: <laughs> That's exactly what I did. It wasn't until, because what happens when you go through all those different traumas throughout different stages of your life, you do put it in sections and you yeah. and you put it away. But when you, like when I sat in that in the, at the police station, I did a six-hour statement. It pretty much starts with your name, what year you were born the first house you remember living in, and you pretty much build up. So you're pretty much telling your life story up until those... Moment. Yeah. So what happened in telling that statement, I was able to also talk about, because you talk about up to the where you are now kind of thing, I was able to put in all of those things that had happened to me. And then at the end of it, it was like reading back and thinking, wow, I survived all that. Like, wow, I... I have been through a lot more, and and I think it it did shake me, even though I didn't show it in the police station. it It shook me for a long time after that. like it's only been in the last couple of years that I'm starting to really get better um, with my mental health. I haven't been on medication for the last two years, and and I think what's helping that is talking. The more I talk about it, the more I desensitise myself to it, Um, which, I mean, no one should have to really desensitise themselves to that kind of trauma, but the more I kept it in, um, the more it showed externally, if that makes sense. Um, Do you mean in the way that your life was playing out? Yeah, just in, you know, how I was acting, like... Even with how I helicopter parent my children, like it's like even though, it, like when we were making this appointment to to meet up, it's like I have to be home for my children when they get home from school. That's just part of who I am. I won't. I haven't worked really since I've had my kids because when my mum was at work and then going to the pub and she wasn't present, you know, all this stuff was happening to me. So if I'm there with my children when they're not at school. And they're at home. I mean, no one comes to my house really. I mean, I have a couple of friends come to my house and that's about it and and family. And I don't even have a lot of family come to my house. So, you know, trying to heal from one trauma, you sort
0: of end up with more traumas in a sense. So does that mean that you work, have you needed to work with a therapist? Has there been some different kinds of ways that have helped you I've had a psychologist through victim
1: services for six years. I actually say to her, if I ever move, I'm taking you with me. (laughs) She's amazing. And, you know, like I actually had um, someone from One Door Mental Health. It wasn't called that at the time when I first started with them, but I've been having, I've got an assistant with them even now and they helped me set goals for myself like i wasn't even cooking for my family four nights a week we were doing takeaway mm. i wasn't i just wasn't coping like mm. and i wasn't hungry most of the time i never had an appetite to cook um you know most of the time when you cook for your family you think okay so what do you feel like, what do we feel like you know yeah. i never felt like anything yeah i was just eating to su- to survive and i was barely doing that yeah. like Um, And I actually said to Aidan because I said I'm so angry all the time and I'm just – I'm so angry like – and I was breaking things in the house. So he bought me a boxing bag, you know, one on a big stand and when I was feeling like that I'd put the gloves on and I'd go out and I would box until I was literally – I couldn't move anymore. Mm. I was exhausting myself Mm. and then I would just – literally go and, go and lay down and fall asleep because I was that exhausted from punching. Um, but, yeah, I, I, was, I was. I was just trying to do that just to – and I was screaming a lot. I remember I lived on a property at the time going through court I was angry with my mum because she didn't listen when I was younger and I was going through this court case. I remember walking down the driveway, I had a pretty long driveway, screaming out to my mum, I fucking hate you, mum. Why the fuck did you not listen? Why, did, why weren't you there for me? And, you know, anyone who would have heard me would have been thinking, what's wrong with this crazy woman?
0: <laughs> that really breaks my heart. Yes. It really I've, does.
1: I've forgiven my mum now. Like, um, i I actually had an ayahuasca ceremony.
0: Oh, yes. Tell me about it. Um, For anyone that doesn't know what ayahuasca is, it is a um, plant-based medicine which allows you to explore different parts of yourself in a ceremony.
1: Yeah, and and actually a lot of people um, do it to help with trauma. It helps with trauma and and helps release trauma. Um, And it comes from Peru. So anyway – this was only a few months back I had this ceremony. I'm like, you know what, I feel like I've sort of hit a brick wall with my healing and um, I don't, I'm don't. i done with medications. They, there's so many side effects with me that it feels like the side effects are affecting me more than they're actually mm. helping me. Mm. So a friend of ours said, mentioned this ayahuasca ceremony. So I had this um, shaman come to my house and she was amazing. And I had this um, medicine... The ayahuasca and um, it showed me, it pretty much showed me that um, it's hard to explain an ayahuasca ceremony because they sort of sort of say you hallucinate, but you don't really like you can see patterns and everything from the third dimension. Mm. Um, but it kept bringing up my mum, you know, like I carry a lot of my. Um, a lot of my emotional stuff from my mum's neglect, um, you know, and I have separation anxiety because she was never there for me, and um, that I need to forgive my mum, that carrying the anger against my mum is not actually helping me. Yeah. I need to let it go. Yeah. So it was showing me a lot of things like that, and it doesn't show you as in a, a picture show, like it it's like something gets into your head and point pinpoints things that you need to um, release. Yeah, and, you know, I was shown that I had been working on my other traumas but not the trauma that my mother had caused me. So I needed to work on that. Yeah. And, um, you know, another thing, you know, I've got psychic abilities and I also wonder whether there's whether because they say that some psychic abilities come, can come from um when children go through child, like a lot of trauma oh. it actually teaches them to be more in touch with their sixth sense wow i didn't know that so i've actually read that so i've always been curious about it so in my ayahuasca i was like asking where does my ability come who shows me cuz i've had some pretty full on things like i've been shown where dead bodies are even oh. that i didn't even know the oh people God. and the police have found them like don't yeah like really full on stuff and i'm like and it scares me sometimes. I'm like, what the hell? Like, why? Like, who's showing me this? So I've always asked, like, why and how. And through ayahuasca, my ayahuasca ceremony, I was seeing these, like, beautiful colours, like, just I didn't know what they were. The next morning I woke up and I knew they were electromagnetic fields. And I searched it up in the link to psychic ability. Oh. And it actually... And it that's, was there. It's there. I was shown I was seeing a lot of green as well like fluoro green throughout my ceremony and the next day I knew to Google um green aura and actually everything I read about the green aura explained to me about my healing and where I'm at and everything so it was really it was really full on and ever since my ayahuasca ceremony I've actually been a lot calmer I'm not as angry I've um I used to be very reactive like You know, the kids would spill something. I'd be like, "Oh, what the fuck!" Like, and that's just a trauma response. And since I've had my ayahuasca ceremony, I'm not so reactive. I'm a little bit more mellow, which how it should be. Wow! I actually have three more that I've paid for, and and they're really full of ayahuasca. Like you actually purge, you vomit, and everything. You vomit, and it's really like I was scared. I thought I was dying throughout the whole thing. (laughs) Um, it's really. Scary I've heard thing. some
0: incredible, um, and also some dangerous things with ayahuasca. So I want to yeah. warn people that are listening that might be interested that you really have to do your own research because there has been yep. cases, especially overseas, there where was a death. There, I think and people died have from it. also been missing, like they go wandering and things oh, like really? that. What I do want to talk about is you're doing some work now with facts, and you're doing work to help. Children. Yeah. And I'm families. not just doing
1: work with facts. I'm there's actually um, a university training module um, where I'm
0: based on your trauma. I yeah. Believe. It's called
1: the Ghost Hunter Training Module. Wow. And it's in universities, not just I think it's in Australia, but I think it's been released around the world. Like, yeah. It's, it's huge. It's huge.
0: And so I want to talk about this specifically for people listening that. May have a feeling they're being groomed, as a parent or a carer, yep. or they're seeing signs in children. What can you help us understand from your experience?
1: I I think for any parent out there, if you've got, and unfortunately, um, perpetrators are normally people that we know. They're not normally strangers, and if they are strangers. They're going to make sure that they get to know you very, very quickly. They're going to make themselves readily available for you. So they're going to, you know, oh, you've got a headache. Don't worry, I'll take your children out for you. I'll take your kids out for the day. Or you're struggling financially. Oh, I've got zoo passes. Why don't I take your kids to the zoo for you? Or, you know, they're going to be available for you. They're cunning. They're smart. They know what they want. They normally come across as the most kindest people. Um, and they're they're very often family members or family friends, so yeah. or even um, you know someone in the institutional type oh. thing. So you know your kids might go to dancing, or they might play tennis, or do swimming, or you know even someone in your church group, or um, it could be somebody who you know your kids go to a regular camp for. And and I'm it's hard, you know, I I don't want to scare people, I don't want to put people off from. Um, them allowing their kids to experience different things in life but it can be anyone in those types of groups as well you know if your kids go to boarding school it could be someone in boarding school it could be a babysitter um
0: yeah grooming is so finessed isn't it it's real. it's an art yeah they know they it's almost like
1: someone writing a story you've you, you know what you want in the story and you're building up to get to the, you know, so to, you to man- the headline, they're manipulating. They're manipulating the everything.
0: whole circumstance to yep. get the thing set up yep. that they can take.
1: That's exactly
0: right. So, say that a child is being groomed or a child has been abused. What would be some points that you would say to? keep an eye on because especially through teens and early adolescence there's a lot of withdrawing and attitude and things like that already yeah would you be what would some of those things be to be really switched on to
1: I think one of the big ones for me is like body language is a big one so when your child's around somebody um, and that person's doing stuff to them, you'll probably find... It's all about body language, I think, too, with how you your kid's acting around that person. So being really attuned yeah. to your children. Yeah.
0: Do you think it's helpful to ask your children?
1: I think it's important to set your children boundaries. Like my children have always known, you know, um, no one's ever allowed to touch you downstairs you're not to touch anybody's private parts. Even if they threaten you, don't believe them. You come and tell me they can't hurt you.
0: What age did you start that? Like really little? Five. Okay. I have a resource I'll put in the show notes. It's a rhyming book for children. Yeah. You might know of it. Um, I can't remember the title off the top of my head, but I've already bought it for my son. It yeah. might be too early, um, but it is about privacy, private parts and boundaries with people. Yeah. And I think if you can start to have them, I I like my dad will say, Oh, I can't read that to him. That's a bit much. And I like, that's the point. The point is that it is a lot yeah. and we all have to be invested in his safety and well-being. That's exactly right. And if that makes you uncomfortable, I'm sorry for that, but this is how it's all going to go down. A lot of the old school
1: people do find things like that uncomfortable because things were never spoken about like that before. You know, everything was swept under the rug, you know, and we're at a stage now where we're coming to a time where people are talking, um, things aren't getting swept under the rug. And we're encouraging victims
0: to have a voice. That's exactly right.
1: You know, there's actually organisations like Act for Kids, they're an amazing organisation. We'll put that in the show notes. Yeah. We'll put a few resources. They actually go into schools and teach things like that. Um, yeah. They teach about grooming and stuff like that. I personally think it should be something that the government pay for in all schools. I think it should be part of the lessons. And and I'm, I think from kindy upwards it should be taught. Everyone should be taught it. It shouldn't have to be something that's self-funded, Um, it should be paid by the government. Um, You know, if the government start paying for things like this and supporting children's education around child abuse, then, you know, it's going to hopefully as time goes by, people will think twice about perpetrating against children because children are allowed to speak up about it.
0: So tell me then if someone listening has a child of any age that comes to them and says, so-and-so did this to me, what does that child need in that moment and afterwards I, th-
1: I think at that moment you know for the child to be believed is really important
0: mm, paramount
1: not not made to feel like you know they did it or they've asked for it um straight away a counselor and there should be more counselors based on this and i think it's getting to that stage where there is but definitely um counsellor first and foremost, and I even think that even in a point where somebody walks into a police station with their child or with their, you know, it doesn't matter what age the child is or even as an adult Mm. and says, look, someone's raped me or or something like that, the first point should always be a social worker, a counsellor. You know, I walked into a police station when I was 19 and I was ready to to talk. My life was so messed up and I was just like, I need to let go of this stuff. And I end up walking out of there.
0: It was too hard.
1: There was, was no support. It was in the too hard basket and there was no support. So if I walked in there as a nine, 10 year old and they appointed a counsellor straight away, took me into a room, sat me down, maybe I would have dealt with it at 19 mm. and not in my 40s. You know, 30 years later, that could have been a major difference.
0: Does it. Now being a mother, was there a point, because how old are your children?
1: My daughter's 16 and my son's 12.
0: When they were at 11, did that trigger you? That there... was a
1: big turning point for me, especially my daughter, because like I used to feel ashamed about what I'd gone through and almost blame myself. And so when my daughter was 11, I'm thinking to myself, now if my daughter went through that, would I be wanting her to feel ashamed or, you know, I'd want her to feel supported. I'd want her to feel like the victim that she was. Mm. Um, And, yeah, so I think that was a massive turning point because I saw myself in my daughter. Yeah. Yeah. And then I saw, even at sixteen, like I see my daughter now, and I think where I was at sixteen, I think far out, our worlds just completely different. Like, and I feel like I've changed that generational thing as well. Like, you've stopped it; yeah. it's not going to happen to her. Yeah, and I mean, God, God forbid that. You know, I think she's pretty smart though. Um, even both my children. You no, know, my partner and I have had a couple of arguments, and my son's like, "I'm never going to be like that." <laughs> you like good
0: boy. Um, yeah,
1: like yeah. So I mean, I feel like, you know, he brings home awards from school about um you know, he hates conflict. He's always the one who goes the in. Keeper. He's always and and he, even if he starts has a fight with someone at school, he'll go and make it right. Oh bless. So I'm like, you know, I feel like I've taught them well. I've set, you You've know, really good, good boundaries for them and um they need to know what the world's like to be able to survive in it. Mm. But if you make if you, if you pretend that the world is something it's not, when they do get to that age, they're going to be shocked that they are going to be traumatized, you know, um, yeah, so I mean, I talk to my kids about all the different drugs, and I've had a couple of friends who have been on drugs, and I've explained to them they've been taking this drug, and you know this is what it does to them, and you know, like I teach them about that, and I hope to God that they know better when somebody says, "Here I have a line of ice." You know, I I don't want them going there. I want them to know that, no, we know what that does. Do they know what happened to you? Yes, they do. Not in detail, obviously, but during both, I went through two court cases together. I thought, you know what, Um, I'm not going to do one court case and then do another. I I need to deal with this stuff now. There's no point doing one and getting through it and then starting another and having Mm. to go through it all just do them both together, get over it. My children were the ones supporting me. Yeah. You know, when I've had times where... And, and this makes me sad because, like, my children shouldn't have to be the ones there going, it's okay, mummy, it's okay, I love you, and hugging me. And, like, I remember one day, I can't remember, I got off the phone to the police or something and I just broke down in tears. Like, I, was, I think I was howling like a baby. And my son was – it was school holidays or something and my son was playing Xbox in the other room and he comes running out and he goes, it's all right, Mum, and he's hugging me and he's stroking my hair and, you know, like my kids are really amazing. Like they've been through a lot um, just seeing me trying to deal with all my childhood trauma. And, um, But, you know, there was some times while I was going through court and I was just thinking, you know, I can't do this anymore. It was my kids that kept me going, you know. They gave me, they still do give me a reason to keep going. Mm. Um, You know, I've there's been plenty of times where I thought, I've literally had plans and I've gone, okay, if I go out to the stable, there's beans there. If I get a rope, I I don't know how to make a noose. Maybe if I Google it, you know. And just that whole thought process. And it's not like I'm going to do it because, like, I won't do it. I'm chicken shit. (laughs) I just won't do it. And... My children need me and I will never leave my children in the hands of anybody else. So that just drives me to keep going. But I've had those moments. And, you know, I try and encourage any victims out there, you know, it is worth going through the court case but it's so hard. Like there's nothing easy about it. Mm. You relive all your childhood traumas. If there's other victims, you hear about all their traumas. Mm. They stick in your head. Um. The process is hard. You know, if it's a family member, in most cases when you're having a family member locked up for that kind of crime, the family generally stick with the perpetrator. Wow. It's very, very common. Like I've learned that it's common since going through it myself.
0: Wow.
1: It's just part of it, unfortunately. It's a hard process. But, you know, in saying that, I've lost so much, but I've gained so much of my soul back too.
0: Our final question is, who are you when no one's watching? <laughs> an overprotective mum.
1: Just trying to find some happiness in my life. Like Every day is different for me. Some days harder than others, um, but every day I work hard to keep going. It's not an easy process, but it's something that... I honestly say that if I didn't have my kids, I probably wouldn't give a shit. I probably would have gone. I probably just would have taken a drug overdose or something like that. They give me drive. They give me everything, you know. And I'm lucky I've got a good partner and, you know, he puts up with all my shit. And I try not to be a triggered person, but unfortunately I am. And I'm trying to work really hard to just heal, like, and um, just be... I feel like since I've been about 21 I've just been working on being a better version of myself constantly and, you know, I think my ambassador work really helps as well. Mm. I think the more I talk about it, it gives me a purpose for something that happened to me that was so shitty. There's nothing nothing positive about what I went through but the work I'm doing about that is really positive positive. Um, and I'm just hoping that eventually with the work that I'm doing And a lot of other people are doing this kind of work now as well. I think it will make a difference and I hope things become a
0: little bit easier and better for children. I believe your work is changing lives and helping children. I do. And I thank you for doing that because that's going to infiltrate through generations. I hope
1: so. And I just, I I want to make my, I wanted to change, change it for my children as well. You know, I grew up in, home, in a home where there, were, there was drinking and there was partying and there was drug-taking. My kids haven't had any of that. Like, they have just a normal home, you know. They come home from school. I'm home. They have cooked meal. They have – I wash – I do everything for my children. Yeah. I was kind of thinking maybe I've done too much for them <laughs> because now they expect everything. And, like, my daughter's 16 and my son's 12 and I'm like – I'm sure um, you can
0: cook the pasta tonight.
1: Well, yeah. no, I don't even expect that. But it's just like when I do ask them to do something, it's like I'm asking them to do the world and I'm like, oh, God, I think I've created ai don't know, maybe I've created diff- another problem, an entitled child problem, but um, they certainly won't be neglected,
0: that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing your truth with us, for being so courageous and for surviving so much. And for helping others. Thank Thanks. you. Sorry. Thanks for having me here today. I
1: appreciate it. It's people like you who give me a platform which will help the change. I think it's important. So I thank you too.
0: <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of The Deep. If it's left you with any burning questions for me or our guests, please hit us up by direct message on Instagram at What's The Deep.